Welcome to In the Movement Podcast, a podcast discussing all things happening in the credit union movement. Each episode will feature leaders talking history, current affairs, and how we can utilize our expertise to educate, communicate, and mobilize, all to better serve our movement. Here are your hosts, Chris Kem, Austin DeBay. Welcome to another edition of In the Movement Podcast. I am Chris Kim. And I'm Austin DeBay. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Seems like we've uh, had a little bit of a rest. Yeah, it's been good. And uh, this it was good to be back on the uh, the podcast. I know some of the audience have been asking when our next uh, podcast is going to come out. Uh, we did take a break through the summer as we were planning to. We admittedly were probably going to produce this a little sooner, but as you know, we've had some at this time in 2021, we've had quite the uh, legislative summer slash fall with getting out some of the initiatives. So that's kind of taken uh, precedent right now. And uh, on top of it, unfortunately, I got myself a nice case of breakthrough COVID throughout that. So I am healthy though now. So I am, I'm Superman. I feel I have my vaccination. I have my natural antibodies. So I, I'm, I'm good to go but it did knock me out for a couple of weeks. But as I mentioned, Chris, it was really good to have this conversation with you with our guests today. Yeah, and I'm glad to have you back and glad you you and your household are healthy. Had we recorded at that time, you might have sounded like me for a little bit. <laughs> today, uh, we we have a great guest. We selected this guest in, in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month. Today, we have Pablo D. Felipe. He serves as a senior vice president for membership and network engagement at Inclusive. He's quite the passionate guy. Originally, he's from Chile. Pablo came to the U.S. in the 90s, and almost immediately, he became involved in credit unions. He began his credit union career from a social studies teacher, which I thought was incredibly intriguing. After moving to the United States, uh, he started working for a credit union called Municipal Credit Union in New York City, uh, one of the largest financial institutions in New York. Then he joined the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union. It's an iconic credit union. It's a nationally recognized community development credit union that serves Hispanics and other financially underserved populations in New York City. He tells a great story on how it used to be and where it's at today. He actually moved to become the CEO of that credit union in 2004 and then uh, went on to work with the World Council of Credit Unions uh, and their remittance program. And now he currently is serving for uh, his current position at Inclusive. You know, Austin, when you recorded this, it's one of our longer podcasts outside uh, our chairman's podcast, but I felt this wasn't as interactive as it normally has been. I actually felt like I was a subscribed listener listening to a podcast and getting a tremendous educational session on our history and the involvement. And I really drew from his passion and what he does for our movement. So I don't want to take any more time. I really want to get to the podcast because it, it is a longer one. So let's get after it. Welcome, Pablo. We are excited to have you on for our National Hispanic Heritage Month as we kick off our second half of our podcast for the year. Good morning, Pablo. And I want to just tell the audience that when we record these, we actually are on a video just so we can communicate it, but you obviously all have the audio portion only. But I, I want to say that for those that can't see, Pablo did dress up for us today. So I, I didn't want that to, to go to waste. So just so you know, thank you. I appreciate Pablo. I, I, he has a great tie on. I wish you all could see it. <laughs> Thank you, Austin and Chris. Really appreciate it. It's a great uh, opportunity, actually, to be here with you guys. And yes, I'm wearing a tie. It's a yellow tie. Don't like ties. So really made an effort. I wanted to impress you guys. Hopefully the conversation will. I'm sure it will. And as we mentioned in the intro, you currently are with Inclusive, and, and we'll get to that. Uh, but before we begin, we always like to start off and, and ask our guests to tell us their journey to where they, how they got to where they are today. I know you have a background in credit unions and a pretty extensive background. So we'd be interested to hear, and our audience would be interested to hear how you got to where you are currently. Yeah, sure. And it's a long journey. I actually didn't study to run a credit union. I was a social studies teacher in my country, in Chile. Uh, that's where I grew up and actually did some work before coming to the U.S. My family's journey goes way before I came. I think that people remember Melania Trump talking about how she came here. 
that's how many people come here. It's, it's called kind of chain migration. You know, a family member comes first, then somebody else comes. In our case, you know, an uncle, my father's brother came first in the 60s. And then my father came in the 70s. And then my mother came in the 80s. And then we came in the 90s, right? So every decade, you know, there was a new the Philippine member coming to the U.S., and it was a long process and it was, you know, at times a painful process because, you know, it's a new environment. Uh, in Chile, we speak Spanish, never learned English, you know, just what you learn in, in high school. So it was challenging. And to tell you the truth, we came to New York City and people don't speak English in New York City. <laughs> it's really hard to understand people there. So <laughs> It was even more challenging, but at the same time, you know, you come to one of the most diverse cities in the world, you know, everything happens there. So it was, you know, as much as a discovery of the U.S., it was like getting into the U.N. Every language, every color, every culture is there. Incredible. Yeah. And I can't even, even just, I've only been in New York twice in my life and even growing up in, in this country. It's just so overwhelming. Just when you see that, there's nothing like it. No matter how many big cities you've been to in this world or in this country, New York City is just a completely different experience the first time you see it. Yeah, it's very unique. At the same time, it's a city of contradictions. And that's the reason I connected with credit unions. So when you grow outside this country, you have a pretty defined view of what the U.S. is all about, right? It's the self-made country, you know, the land of opportunities, you know, it's the land of capitalism. You know, you build something, people will buy it. It's all about you, the individual. And then you come here and guess what? You discover this amazing cooperative system that we don't even have in Chile, you know? And I'm like, what the heck? How is that possible? What a contradiction, right? Where you have, you know, this idealization of what an economic system is all about. And then you have this alternative that is there and that is growing and that is strong. And it was like one of the first things that really didn't connect in my brain because it was such a contradiction. The second contradiction was, well, money doesn't grow in trees here. I saw a lot of poverty. And then I saw something even worse. Wall Street is in New York City. Wall Street is the heart of the universe when it comes to money. And yet in New York City, many people don't have access to financial services, basic financial services. And I was blown away. I mean, this is the most sophisticated country in the world. How is that possible? So all these things started you know, to kind of collide in my brain because I just couldn't understand how that worked. But then you realize that credit unions as financial cooperatives can and should have a role in closing some of these gaps that we see in the marketplace. So that what I saw in New York City didn't happen to me because for the first few years of my life, I couldn't get a loan. I didn't have a credit card. So my first connection to a credit union was through my father, my dad, who did one of the first things. I mean, I came in, you know, on a, on a Saturday on the plane. Then on a Monday, we are opening an account in El Banquito de la Esquina, the bank around the corner. And that banquito, that bank was actually a credit union. It was the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union, right there in Loisaida. Third Street and Avenue B in New York City. And it was like a tiny institution that uh, had been created actually because the only bank in this city, in this neighborhood, and this is again New York City, right? A community is over of around 80,000 people were left outside, yes, because the one bank in that community decided that that community was too poor for them to serve. That bank was Manufacturers Hanover. And when they shut down their branch in 1988, this was way before they came to the U.S., they claimed that this community was too poor, that they couldn't make money, yet they had $50 million in deposits from this poor community, only 25000 in loans to the community. And guess what? They were investing a lot of that money in South Africa under the upper heads. So here you have uh, a bank that is extracting wealth from minority communities and then injecting that wealth into 
to support a system that is abusing a minority majority in that country. You know, again, contradictions, right? What do you see in this country? Sometimes we forget the perspective that people gain when they move from one element to another. Yeah, and some of that, you know, is cultural. I think that there's this thing here in this country that poverty is a disease and poor people are to be blamed for being poor. And the reality is, is that it's all about tools. It's all about how can we make those tools available to everyone. And that's where credit really come into play. You know, when we talk about financial services, we're not just talking about a checking account or a credit card. We're talking about essential tools without which you cannot function. So let's, let's think about, you know, people who are poor. If they don't have a bank account, they become even poorer because they have to go to a cashing place to cash a check, right? So they're going to pay a fee and then they're going to have to pay the rent. So they buy a money order and then they may have to pay their phone bill. So all of a sudden, this person is you know, spending a significant amount of their paycheck just on things that for most people or for many people, I should say, are free. How can we justify that? And then we blame these people because they cannot break the cycle. Well, let's give them the tools. And, and this is not about socialism. This is about making sure that we're giving people the tools so they can take advantage of the huge opportunities this country offers. That's the dream, the American dream. That's why people come here. You know, we don't come here to get a, a welfare check. We come here to build our lives, our future, our communities. But we cannot do that without those tools. And credit unions can actually fill that gap. And we are doing that. And that's why I fell in love with our movement, because we can. That's our destiny. That's the reason we started in the first place. Think about, you know, the first credit union in the U.S., St. Mary's Bank. It was created by whom? French Canadian immigrants. Why? Because banks refused to give them loans. Why? Because they spoke French. That's so right. this is the same story all over again. You know, this is us. Credit unions can do this and should do this and are doing this. I love hearing your passion. It fires me up and I'm a passionate guy. I know we didn't go into the depths of where you got where you're at today. And I'd still like you to explain that because I think we only got to how you got here and then we sidetracked and we went down a, it's not a pigeonhole, it's it's your excitement talking about how, what drove you to become who you are, which I think leads into my next question, but you're sharing how you're getting passionate about what we do. How did you go from that immigrant who came to our country to becoming a CEO of a credit union? And then how did you move from there to your, your next features? I mean, you, you have a very uh, eclectic background when it comes to how you fit in our movement. And I can tell why in our first 10 minutes of the interview, your passion comes through. But, and I'm hoping I'm not spoiling the story, but I want, we want to hear it from you. It's as much as luck as, and you know, when we talk about luck, it's just being at the right place at the right time. And I came to a neighborhood in New York City that it was economically challenged, that the Lower East Side of Manhattan is very different today than it was in the 90s. It has gentrified. You go there now and, and it, there's a lot of businesses. But when I came, it was a little bit scary. In fact, when my dad came to New York City, that neighborhood was a little bit like Berlin after the war. Boarded up buildings everywhere, empty buildings everywhere. And then this community got together and they built it. They rebuilt it. And then this one credit union was there to help that community do that. Exactly that, right? So when I came to that one credit union to open my account, I had no aspirations or no connection to credit unions. Then couldn't tell the difference between that and a bank. And in fact, I opened my account and then I started looking for a job. I was a teacher in Chile. I wanted to teach here in the US. Pretty soon I found out that it wasn't going to happen. The educational system here is a lot more challenging in many ways. Teachers don't have the same level of respect that I came from. So anyways, and the language barrier was huge, right? So I realized that I needed to change my field. And one day I walked into the credit union and there is this amazing woman. Her name is Joy Coase Miner. And she was the CEO of another credit union in New York City, Bethex Credit Union. And she was actually doing this training 
she had been hired by my organization, Inclusive, which back then used to be known as the National Federation of Community Development Canadians. So she had been hired by this organization to do some job training in inner city communities, right? So she just basically had a, a job training program where, you know, you would go and kind of learn how to answer the phone and how to just do basic office stuff. And at the end of that a training, they would just place you as an intern in a credit union. So I was placed at Municipal Credit Union, one of the largest credit unions in New York. And got lucky because they really gave me the tools. I was able to go back to college and kind of reinvent myself, went to accounting, you know, took accounting classes and acquired the skills that I needed to work in this new industry to me. Then I went back to Lower East Side to get a loan. My wife wanted to go back to Chile to visit her family. And talking to the manager, she goes, we're looking for an assistant manager. Would you like to work here? And again, I'm working at Municipal Union, huge institution. And then I am offered this job at this small, tiny institution. And I said, yes. And my boss at, at Municipal, you know, asked me, why are you doing this? This is a big you're taking a leap of faith here. We're going to be around forever. That institution, forget it. They're not going to be around. There's no way they can make it. And I guess that made it to me, to be told that something doesn't work when you know that it could work. So I took that job as an assistant manager and I did everything. I was the janitor. I cleaned windows. I you know, managed the cashier, did everything, and then learned so much about what it means to run a community development credit union what it means to people. This is not just, you know, a a bank or a financial institution. It's a place where you get respect, where you get, you know, people listen to you, where you are visible. You know, how many times you've walked into a bank branch and it's like people don't see you. I don't know if that's ever happened to you guys, but it happened to me many times. And then when you go to a place where people recognize you, they call you by your name and they treat you with respect and dignity, it makes a whole difference. You know, I became involved with the credit union. I eventually became, became the manager, then the CEO of the institution, and we built it up. We were able to become a CBF5, get some funding, grew the institution. And now that tiny institution that people said there's no way they're going to make it is $100 million in assets. And again, this is in the heart of New York City, where now you're surrounded by banks. They're still there and going strong. Why? Because they're serving a population that is invisible to the entire financial system. The people who are deemed to be riskier, the poorest, is not true. These are all misconceptions where we blame people for things that we don't do for them. So Lower East Side now, it's a you know, terrific institution. They have made a huge difference in that community. Because of that institution, that community has been able to maintain their identity. Identification hasn't transformed it to the point where you don't recognize it anymore. Still the loaded side of Manhattan. So from there, I went to the World Council of Credit Unions. I did a lot of work with remittances. That was a big thing years ago. Again, because, you know, many immigrants send money back home. So that gave me a different perspective about our movement. Up until, you know, all the time I was at the lowered side, I felt like I was on my own and that many Canadians were so different. We were so unique. And in many ways, we were unique. But I understood that many more Canadians out there were as passionate and were doing similar work. So it kind of widened up my understanding of our movement, which at some point I was calling industry because I didn't see that there was, there was this connection between some institutions that were doing this work in financial inclusion and community development and the rest of the industry. So through the work council, I realized that, no, that we share these principles and many creators actually do this incredible, unique role in their communities. So that gave me that understanding that we are so much more than just one institution. That background and that perspective seems to grow on everyone. You know, when they first come into a credit union, uh, we do a lot of staff trainings. And I always ask them, when you agreed to become an employee of this credit union, did you know you were joining a movement? And to get the look from everyone when you ask them that is 
on my side kind of funny because the ones who know what they're getting into or knew uh, what they were applying for, you know, with confidence, shake their head. And then the ones who have no clue give you that puzzled look as if you just ask them to sell something they don't have. It's mind boggling when you realize one, how big our movement is and two, the passion that resides within it and how dedicated most of our credit union professionals really are uh, when it comes to serving our community. I want to expand on that a bit because we want to talk about the dynamics. You grew up in a foreign country. To you, your home, Chile. You came to the United States, social studies teacher. You became a CEO and now you become this voice. What is the biggest things you've learned going from a social studies teacher to a CEO running an organization to now helping influencing so many more people on why we should be serving our communities, uh, particularly our uh, immigrant communities or our really what, what we were founded to do, the people of modest means, which we really do a great job of doing. Uh, what, what's the biggest things you've learned through those three very dynamic changes? The most important thing is to understand that our roots in many ways determine our future. And I say this because I mentioned St. Mary's Bank as the first creator here in the U.S. And I think that we need to be reminded of why we exist. Sometimes, you know, success is great, but success makes you forget where you came from. And I think that it's important for us as an industry never to forget that because we have a role that is so unique. I think that we, the Ukrainians, can claim that we created the middle class in this country. And we could do that over and over again. So when we think about, well, you know, I can't really serve these people because I'm not equipped. Well, go back to your the way that you used to make loans. I was actually on a, on a conference last week and this one person who received an award said, my first loan, I got it in the living room of the manager of the credit union because we didn't have a branch. So let's think about that, right? Because it's about people. We need to think about that. Our roots, our impact is to help lift people up. That's really our role. It's not just to grow with people who have now the tools and have been able to achieve financial security. That we can continue, but we should not forget that we have another wave of people who want to go through the same process. And why not? That's what we do best. We build wealth. Pablo, so when you talked about your story, first off, your story is so unique, but yet it's uniquely an American story. I mean, you could replace the Chile with uh, the Netherlands and you could replace uh, the Lower East Side with Iowa and it'd be my family's story, you know, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a couple of generations earlier, but still the same story, the coming to America and figuring it out. And, and then you talk about your credit union how unique it is, but it's still also just a uniquely a credit union story. It's so similar to the St. Mary's credit union, even though you have the unique characteristics of, of the credit union that you work for. And I just love the parallels to what you said and thinking about the 30s, 1930s, when the credit unions were forming to help people through the Great Depression and how they're still doing the same thing in the 90s, helping immigrate populations in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So it's just a, it, it's such a good reminder. I think anytime we talk about these topics, for me, it gives me a, a new set of appreciation. It's kind of just this re-energizing of the movement. And it's a perfect time because we're recording this uh, on the week that it's International Credit Union Day. And it's much the same time as when we're talking about the work credit unions do in, in countries and, and especially in developing countries, that that work really kind of re-energizes the philosophy of the movement for me. And your story has done that. So I appreciate that and taking the time to go through that. Very, very interesting. I, I was I stayed quiet because I, I just wanted to hear what you had to say. Let's uh, go on to the current organization to work with Inclusive. Uh, can you explain? You, you mentioned it briefly. Can you explain kind of what you do there currently and what the organization is all about? Yes. Inclusive is a national association of community development credit unions. We have been around for a long time. I mentioned that we used to be known as the National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions. We changed our name five, six years ago to Inclusive because we really wanted to convey more effectively what we're all about. So financial inclusion is something that many Canadians do. So we don't claim that. But what we 
want to promote is the understanding that financial inclusion should not be an afterthought or something marginal to our activity. It should be central to our activity. That's the focus. That's what's given us our north is financial inclusion and community development is to help our members who live in communities that have been left behind. And this is not just an issue of black, brown, or white. You know, it's an issue of rural versus urban. You know, how many communities, white communities, have been left behind because the one bank that was there shut down, right? And and this is our destiny. You know, if we want to really maintain our role and our significance, I guess, in the financial services sector, we are not banks me too. We are the real deal, right? We will take, you know, your $5, you know, deposit or your 10 billion or 10 million deposit, right? We are the biggest equalizer in the country. That's what I think. And we should make that available to everyone. And this is not about handout. It's not about charity. This is a business, let's be clear. But it's a business that has been proven to work. What we do at Inclusive is that we not only promote financial inclusion, but we also do research that supports this, right? That if you're serving low-income consumers, you are not only helping the community, that consumer, you're helping your own institution because you will be more relevant. You will grow because it's such a lie when people tell you that there's no money in low-income communities. There's plenty of money. It's cash, but it's there. It's under the mattress, but it's there. And you see all these paycheck cashers, these payday lenders there, and you see they're taking money from these communities. They're extracting that wealth from communities. We can take that wealth and put it back into the community. That's the difference. We can build communities because we are the biggest recycling of money that is. We take from your neighbor and we give to your neighbor as a loan. That's a wonderful model that is sustainable, that is responsible that is transparent, let's make sure that we don't forget that and that we are letting also people know that this exists. We talk a lot about Ukrainians having 150 million members, but how many members really know that they're members? How many times do we tell them, sir, ma'am, you are an owner? No, we don't say that. And I think that that takes away one of the biggest motivators for consumers to belong to credit unions is the ownership piece. When I was at Logoritz side, I remember we would always tell our new members, congratulations, sir, you just bought your bank. You are our boss now. And you know the, the, the face of this belief. What? Me? Por qué? Why? Quien soy yo? Who am I? You know, I can afford it. No, sir, you just became a member. You own this place. With the other members, you own it. And, you know, we're going to be accountable to you. So... That makes a huge difference, especially in communities where people can't own anything, where even you can rent a TV sometimes because you don't have the money, right? So it, it can be a big, psychologically, a huge selling point for Ukrainians if we were more clear about the ownership piece. You know, you reminded me of a, of a story that is told in the family back for generations where you have the aunts and the uncles and they all had to give $100 a week just using a, a loose number. They all had to give, uh, and there's 12 of them. They all had to give $100 every week. And then every week, one person got to take that $1,200 and spend it on what they needed to spend it on. And then they turn around and the very next week, everyone gives the $100 and then the next person uses $1,200. It's very much of the model what credit unions are, right? When you talk about how you take the money from your neighbor and you give it to your neighbor. Everyone benefits from it every 12 weeks. Right. So that, that's a, a great historical look back at why we do what we do. People forget. I, I loved your saying of success makes you forget. It really does. The, the more success we have, we tend to forget our roots and where we came from and why we do certain things. And I, I think this is an important time, not, not only for Hispanic Heritage Month, but with International Credit Union Day upon us. It's crucial to get back to our roots all the time, not just when we feel like it. We should always come back to our roots. What are some of the initiatives that Inclusive is currently working on? 
So we have a number of initiatives. When I mentioned that we are a network, uh, that's one thing that we are, but we're also a lender. We are a CDFI. We intermediate. We raise resources both from the public and private sector and inject those resources into credit unions that are doing the work that we want them to do. So we work with banks who make investments, and then we use those investments to strengthen credit unions. We advocate for resources this year alone. The Treasury Department is making more than $12 billion, $12 billion available to CDFI credit unions and CDFIs in general. So there's, I think that for the first time, that this is our moment. I've been talking about, we have been talking about financial inclusion for such a long time, but it looks like this is the moment where people are finally connecting the dots and then understanding that it's not just somebody else's issue. This is a collective issue. If a person is unbanked, that person is more likely to be robbed. Robbed, that means crime. Crime rate means property values go down. So there's all this chain reaction. It's almost like the vaccine, right? And okay, it should be my option to vaccine or not, but there's a greater importance, right? The common good to make sure that other people don't get infected. You know, the same thing with money. You know, having people open bank accounts, it's an imperative because it reduces crime. It's that simple. So it should be in our best interest, you know, as locally owned institutions to make sure that we reduce that, right? Because it impacts our members and our communities right away. So promoting financial inclusion is one of our initiatives. Promoting financial inclusion within the Hispanic community is also important. We have the Juntos Avanzamos program, which we would, did not create. Juntos Avanzamos was created by the Texas League many, many years ago. We took that program national in 2015. We made some changes to it because we wanted to make sure that number one was applicable to credit unions across the country, not only to Texas. But number two, we wanted to make sure that it would address you know, some of the issues that have kept uh, Latinos and immigrants outside in the mainstream. And that means, you know, looking at what are the obstacles to open an account? You know, what type of documentation you require for that? And oftentimes we put up barriers that shouldn't be there. And we do that just because we want to protect our members' money, but our members be live in these communities. So I feel that sometimes that misunderstanding of that overprotection becomes a big barrier for us to really meet the needs of these communities. The same with, can you open an account without a social security number? You know, a social security card is not an identification document. It's just a number that allows us to pay taxes. So it's not required to have one to open an account. So anyways, you know, the Juntos Avanzamos program provides this framework that removes these barriers and ensures that if a credit union is going to serve this market, it's going to do it in a way that is responsible to the institution, of course, you know, but also sustainable, but at the same time, transparent, that it works for the consumer. And what we have seen is that credit unions that really serve these markets, Latinos or immigrants, tend to grow faster and tend to grow stronger. A uh, question, uh, you actually might have answered it. You kind of talked about, I was going to ask about what are the biggest barriers to financial inclusion? And it sounds like some of the language barriers and different documents that are required make it a little bit tougher or make it so that it is not as inclusive as it should be. I guess to frame it a little bit different, is proximity to a physical location, is that important to overcome barriers as well? I can assume maybe in some communities it might be more important than others, but I'm just curious if how important it is in the digital age and all that to actually have a physical branch in certain communities to establish whether it's just the credibility piece or if maybe transportation needs just aren't there for some of these communities as well. So I'd just be curious if that's a a way to be more inclusive. Yeah, it's important, but it's not critical. You know, I think that if you have the capacity to build a branch in a Hispanic community, that's great. But technology has helped cross that gap in many ways. In fact, if you look at trends in terms of usage of technology, Hispanics tend to be pretty high up there in terms of, you know, using mobile technology, apps, you know, things like that. 
a physical presence can make a difference. And even if you don't have a brand, you should have partners in that community. One of the requirements for the Juntos Avanzamos designation is that you have active partnerships with community-based organizations because let's remember, financial institutions are a mystery for many people. And in fact, many people have a negative experience with financial institutions. So yes, building something is not that they're going to come, right? I mean, you build it and they will come. It doesn't work like that when people have had a history of negative experiences, when they've been told many times, no, 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 we can open an account for you. We cannot give you a loan. We don't speak your language, right? So there's all these things that, that have created a systemic distrust and not only from the Latino community, but also from other communities as well. So I think that is important for us if we don't have a physical presence is to have a network of community partners that can validate our intentions and not be seen as, oh, so this claim is like Citibank. No, we're not Citibank. We're not Bank of America. We're not Wells Fargo. We are you. And that makes a difference. While we're focusing on Hispanic Heritage Month and we're really talking about a lot of our Hispanic communities, you're not just serving the Hispanic community. You're serving every uh, low-income designation populations that around the country. And your board is pretty diverse. It's probably one of the most diverse boards I've ever seen. Can, can you talk to a, a little bit of that as far as you got the Juntos Amazonas designation, but that does not just specifically go to a Hispanic designated population. No, I mean, the Juntos Avanzamos framework can work almost for any ethnicity. When we talk about barriers, these are barriers that have been around that have prevented immigrants, African-Americans, Native Americans from opening accounts for generations. So it's applicable to use change the language, and then it's applicable to a lot of different situations. So yes, it's a tool that you can adopt. Again, we took it from Texas. Uh, we adopted it. We changed it. It can be modified. It, it's in many ways, we call it open source, right? Because it belongs to our industry. It doesn't belong to inclusive. We are the stewards of it right now, but it belongs to all, all of us. And you guys at Mountain West, I mean, Scott was the first CEO of a league that said, I'm going to support this. Our first Juntos Avanzamos creating outside the Texas footprint was actually in Tucson, in Arizona, right? So we want this to belong to you. We want you to feel the same level of ownership because it's the right thing to do. I love that. How many Juntos Amazonas credit unions are there now in the country? We have 116 Juntos designated credit unions, and they have a presence in 27 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And then when I say Puerto Rico, sounds weird, right? Why Puerto Rico? I mean, everyone speaks Spanish in Puerto Rico. Do they need a Juntos designation? Well, guess what? Puerto Rico has a huge Dominican population. They have a huge Haitian population. And they have the same barriers that people face here in the mainland. So this is applicable to so many different situations, Chris. And I'm so glad, actually, that you pointed that out because it can be adapted. I'm going to talk about one more program that we have People have been talking a lot about climate change and the impact of, I guess, the exacerbation of natural disasters, the intensity of natural disasters because of human-induced changes. And I think that we as credit unions have another huge opportunity. So immigrants, Hispanics, you know, are one big opportunity for us as a movement to grow, but also to fulfill our mission. I believe that we can also fight climate change. And I know it sounds like, what? How can we do that? It's so big. It's bigger than anything else, right? But we can. In fact, in Arizona, you guys have one of the best conditions to promote the utilization of clean energy. Let's replace oil. It can happen. In, and many creators actually are doing solar financing. They're, they're getting into this conversation. We at Inclusive actually set up a center. It's called the Center on clean energy and resiliency because we believe that unions are uniquely positioned to do something about this, to transform our communities, 
to mitigate this dependence on fossil fuels that damage the environment. And if you really think about this, climate change affects more than anyone low-income communities, minority communities. It's just incredible. If you, start, if you start mapping out what's going on in Florida, what communities in Florida or in Louisiana are being affected the most? The poorest communities there. If you look at Puerto Rico, you know, the infrastructure in Puerto Rico has not been upgraded in decades. So they get a, a hurricane and the entire island shuts down. Look at what's going on in California with the fires. Who's running away from the fires? It's not rich people. Well, they do get affected. So, But, you know, it's the people who are less able to start anew, the people who can less afford are the ones that are, you know, building in places where you should not be building. But can you afford to build something else, you know, in a different place? So climate change is something that we can embrace. It's something that we can hopefully contribute to mitigate uh, in Arizona, we're going to start hopefully soon, and I need to follow up with your colleagues at the association because we do have an opportunity to start promoting more some of these clean energy lending programs that we are going to be promoting. So anyways, that's something that I would love to talk about it maybe in another time. And then one more thing, you know, just in terms of opportunities. Let's think about what happened with the pandemic and what happened with all these businesses that, that have been impacted. When we talk about credit unions as financial first responders, that's us. I think that credit unions are at their best when we have a crisis. And if you think about what happened with these micro and small businesses, they were left behind. So again, this concept, being left behind, is what we do best because we can pick that up. And we can build it, right? So, you know, we've left behind immigrants. We've left behind many communities here, but we can help them catch up. The same with micro and small businesses. Banks, you know, made it so clear. We don't want to help you, but I've had my account with you for 20 years. It doesn't matter. You don't exist, you know, a good risk for us. Even though they were not lending their money, it was the government money, right? So what happens? Canadians actually stepped in. So our movement rally behind this. And we originated, what, $10 billion in 2020 in terms of PPP loans. I think that this year is going to be even more than that. I haven't seen the numbers from NCUA. But again, we stepped in. And I think that this is the biggest opportunity we have is in becoming the financial institution of choice for micro and small businesses. Banks don't want them. They don't meet their needs. They're local. We're local. Why not? This is it. This is our next opportunity. So there's so many opportunities, so many places where we can close that gap. So let's do that. Pablo, you talked about some really interesting topics and things that I think went in a direction I wasn't expecting to talk about climate change, but it's a very interesting way to, to look at it. You know, another part of your organization that I know you do is you, you're an advocate uh, with regulators and elected officials. And Chris and I, that is our, you know, a normal job. We aren't hired to be podcasters. We are hired for advocacy. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it was interesting because it reminded me of back when, several years ago, when we first merged and I was working on some Colorado legislation, there was an issue that arose because some federal funds were sent to the states to be dispersed to help with solar farms and to provide financing to, uh, I'm sorry, not solar, wind farms. And a credit union wanted to help support the wind farm. But the problem was, is the money was sent to the, from the feds, it was sent to the state. And in Colorado, they have, they're not allowed to put public funds into credit unions. And so this would be one of those instances where these unintended consequences actually prevent credit unions from actually helping because of some arbitrary regulation or statutory restriction on credit unions. And so it's stories like that that remind us of, of, of continuing to advocate for things, even if it's you don't think of it at the time, you might not need it. It really does. It, it could prevent us from being more inclusive or to help in areas where an elected official might think, well, credit should be helping. Well, yeah, we'd love to, but we can't right now because of some regulation. So I, I wanted just to highlight the fact that I know there's a lot of work that your organization does in the area of advocacy as well uh, with either regulators or elected officials. Yeah, Austin, and that's a great point. But that's why doing more of these work, you know, on the financial inclusion side, on the community development side is so important. 
legislators are interested in change. They want to address issues that they find in their communities. The more we are involved with micro and small businesses, the more relevant we become to them. The more we're involved in fighting climate change, the more relevant we become to them. The more we reduce crime by opening accounts, the more relevant we become to them, right? So I think that this is all connected. So we have to intensify the work that we do. We also have to track it. We have to measure how that activity is actually improving communities because no politician is going to fight something when you have the argument, when you have the data, when you can say, look, because of our financial inclusion campaign in this community, we opened so many accounts for people who didn't have an account. And as a result, police is reporting that crime rates have dropped significantly. That's important, but do we track it? No. I remember years ago, the University of Virginia did a study. There's this one credit union in North Carolina. It's called the Latino Community Credit Union. They started actually in the year 2000. So they're now 21 years old. And the study was done, I, I believe, in 2015 or 2016. And they were just trying to measure two things. You know, what happened with crime rates? and what happens and the connection of that with property values. So in 15 years, you know, this institution that grew from nothing to now there are almost 700 million in assets and they have over 100,000 members. But in 15 years, this institution had lowered so dramatically the crime rates that property values have increased. What happens when, that, when property values increase? Tax collection increases. Now people are paying attention. Okay, now I have more money in my budget. I can do more. And then it becomes, you know, something where this is something we need to support, right? I think that that's the same pattern that we have to follow. Advocacy is only effective if it is rooted in real and measurable impact, not in words. We are the better side of banking, not enough. You know, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. You have to have actionable action behind those words and to the point where someone feels impassioned to actually follow through with what those words say. Exactly. Um, and people tell you that. I mean, I, many of our members are called upon to testify and, and that's great. But I think that we need to activate more credit unions, you know, because we do a great work. I mean, I really believe this. I think that there's not one training in this country that is not doing good things right? We cannot make the same comment for banks. That's unfortunate, but that's a reality. But we can say that. So let's make sure that we are activating and motivating and rallying our members so they can do more of those good things so we can have a bigger impact and we can maybe change some of this regulatory framework that is detrimental because it's preventing communities actually from accessing resources that they need. I can certainly tell you when we thought about bringing you on as a guest and then actually going through what we would hope would fill a podcast, you certainly did that. Not only did you do that, but you gave us more passion. Just hearing your passion, you gave us more passion to go out and keep doing the things that we're doing. You know, one of the, the last questions we were going to ask you in today's age of DNI, what has the growth been for like credit unions who are seeking this designation? I think all we have to do is really play this podcast for them. If they hear your passion and you talk about the questions that Austin asked about how you bring these things as far as what the barriers are, the barriers are quite simply education. We don't know. Where do we go? Who can we talk to? It's breaking down not just the, the language barriers or the distance and travel, but it's also knowing that you can do it. It's also knowing that you can actually go somewhere where you're accepted and wanted and where if you give a dollar or five dollars in this case, now you become an owner and we're going to, in your words, give you the tools to then turn around and find out how you can actually deposit your money, withdraw your money, use your money effectively and efficiently to invest in other things that you might need to grow your family, your house, to feed your children, whatever it may be. The simple things that we take for granted are the basic tools and necessities they need to get their life started. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris and Austin. I really appreciate this conversation, there's so much more to dive in into. Um, but you're right, at the end of the day, it's about giving people the tools, 
they need to have a fair shot. It's not about subsidies. It's not about handouts. It's about opportunities. And that's what this country means, right? That's why we came to this country. It's about opportunities. That's right. Well, I know we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with us. And I hope this podcast can be used. We, we like to say we like to make timeless podcasts podcast that could be used not just today, not just tomorrow, but a year from now or five years from now, someone can listen to this podcast and get something from it and be motivated to take action on it or learn about our history or give them another leg on why they need to do what they need to do for our movement. And I certainly think we accomplished that today. And I know on the behalf of our movement, we thank you for all the hard work that you're doing and serving our communities across the United States. Thank you, Chris and Austin. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Pablo. Well, there you have it, Chris. I will say that we need to be careful with uh, having more presenters like Pablo because he was so good. And you mentioned this at the top and our audience just heard it, but Pablo had talked so well and so articulate. It felt like we were just listeners listening to him. And, and so it really, we didn't interact as much as we usually do, which I'm afraid is a good thing. And our audience might recognize that. So if we want to continue this, to be able to do this, Chris, we're going to have to find more speakers or, or podcast guests that don't know what to say and so that we can listen to ourselves speak more often. I think that is really the goal of this podcast for me. And I, I think that would be a quick death of the podcast if that was the case. But Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I really do uh, agree with you 100%. Pablo was uh, fantastic. And, and I really hope our listeners got um, the educational point of view that, that I took from it. Um, I got to learn more. And, and every time I think, I've learned uh, what I could from this movement. It's, it's amazing that the people that we have out there that are working every day and doing really the yeoman's work, the hard work of moving our communities to do the right things and, and our credit unions to back them up. It's just, it's powerful. It's impactful. Uh, it's just impressive. So we hope you all enjoyed what we did today. And, and just so you know, uh, we have uh, recorded several podcasts. Uh, we're going for our second half of the season or the year here. We have uh, more guests scheduled. So we do have a full slate uh, going for the rest of the year and we hope uh, you didn't mind our break, but uh, we are back and we hope that we can push you to the end of the year and we'll kick off 2022 with our second season of the podcast, if you will. And uh, we'll go from there. So until next time. Well, that's all for today's episode of In The Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening and thank you for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to your favorite podcast listing app so you never miss an episode or visit us on Twitter at MWCUA. 